What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 67 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boon people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past, present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. Today we're speaking with three guests Terry Byers, Vicky Layton, and Tom Perry. Terry Byers is currently the director of the Centenary Library and Innovation in Learning at the Anglican Church Grammar School, Churchy, in Brisbane, Queensland. He is also an adjunct associate professor at the University of Queensland in the School of Education and is currently a unit coordinator in the Masters of Education program. Terry oversees the strategic direction of the Centenary Library and is the co-director of the Churchy Research Centre. Vicky Layton is the Director of Staff Development and Research at Churchy, the Vice Chair of the Churchy National Emerging Art Prize in Australia and PhD student at the University of Queensland. Vicky has a background in art theory, fine art and architecture and a previous career before teaching in the heritage industry in the UK. She currently teaches Theory of Knowledge, a learner's toolkit, which we're talking about today, and visual art, and is the co-director of the Churchy Research Centre. Our third guest today, Tom Perry, researches and teaches at the University of Warwick in the UK, with a focus on research methods and evidence-informed policy and practice. He led the recent Cognitive Science in the Classroom Review for the Education Endowment Foundation, and has researched topics including school progress measures, educational disadvantage and inequalities, school mobility, and effective professional development. Tom works with teachers, school leaders and researchers to better understand how we can generate, exchange and use evidence to improve education. In this episode, we're discussing with these three guests a really exciting project led by this team and others called A Learner's Toolkit. A Learner's Toolkit is a science of learning program focused on equipping secondary schools with tools and strategies to help their students become lifelong learners. Ever since I found out about the power of spacing, retrieval, interleaving, dual coding, and many other learning strategies from the science of learning, I've tried to implement these in my own classroom. Additionally, I've tried to teach my students about these strategies so that they can use them themselves and within their own independent study. There's nothing more empowering than when a student realises that they can take charge of their own learning and that there are evidence-based strategies that can save them time with their study and increase their achievement and understanding too. But despite my efforts, it has been my experience that generating behaviour change in relation to these strategies can be really hard. Simply telling students about space practice and giving them some examples of it, or even running training sessions on how to implement it themselves, rarely generates, unfortunately, the kind of large-scale change in students' study practices that we'd all like to see as teachers. And that's why I'm so excited about a learner's toolkit. This is a multi-year, multi-year level initiative that is wholly committed to working out what it's going to take to help our students to own and independently utilise the science of learning in their own study. There are a few goals within education that I think are more important or exciting. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post or any other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe and make sure you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollielevel.com forward slash subscribe. 
This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational. And this month, I'm sharing a new book from Sam Strickland, The Behavior Manual, an educator's guidebook. This book offers over 100 strategies, approaches, and teaching methods that will help educators within all levels of schooling to proactively lead on behavior. The book is divided into three broad sections, dealing with the role of the school and senior leaders, the role of departments and mid-layer structures and individuals, and the role of teachers in the classroom and a plethora of approaches that they can employ. Each of the 100 behavior strategies is unpacked over a two-page spread. Within each spread is an outline of what the approach is, how it can be applied, in addition to specific things to look out for, and additional helpful tips for implementation. Each spread can be quickly read, digested, and learned from in a few short minutes. The book has been written in a clear and straightforward style designed for busy educators. If you'd like to get your hands on Sam Strickland's new The Behaviour Manual, an educator's guidebook, one of my books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, or Tools for Teachers, or any other book from the fantastic John Cat range, remember the discount code ERRR30, which will give you 30% off all books from John Cat UK or John Cat USA, who ship internationally. Just use that code ERRR30 at checkout. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goldburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured approach to bring the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about the opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic Education Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 67 of the ERRR podcast with Terry Byers, Vicky Layton, and Tom Perry. Terry, Vicky, and Tom, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Good to be here. Hi. Good to be here. Wonderful to have you all. I asked you each in turn, maybe I'll start with, with you, Terry. Could you tell us a little bit about your, your role and your, your career to date and what do you see as the purpose of school-based education? So my name's Terry Byers. I've just kicked over my 15th year at the Anglican Church Grammar School or Churchy in Brisbane. Currently, I'm the Director of the Centenary Library and the Director of Innovation and Learning and with Vicky Layton are the co-directors of the Churchy Research Centre. My role sort of sits outside of a normal traditional school structure where I'm able to have the flexibility to look at new initiatives that are then piloted within the school and uh, we see the value of those sort of interventions through a fairly specific research-orientated process. My career to date, I recently completed my PhD at the University of Melbourne, which was primarily in the evaluation of different learning environments on teachers and students. But I left the end of that PhD a little bit, I guess, jaded from the notion that schools were in particular spending incredible amounts of time and money uh, looking at school-based interventions, but the students seemed to be often fairly agnostic to what was happening. So 
I guess I changed my focus and started to look at, in particular, the translation of the science of learning or the cognitive sciences in the classroom. I'm also a uh, adjunct associate professor at the UQ, at the University of Queensland, the School of Education, and I currently teach in the Masters of Education program. In terms of, I guess, the purpose of school-based education, I guess over my career, I've fallen into various pitfalls of accepting generally the trends and, and those sort of things over the time. And I've come to the realisation that the purpose of school-based education is really to equip students to be lifelong learners. That being where we actually explicitly train them in the best strategies for their learning, but also train them and support the equipping of the particular learning behaviours or learning dispositions that are going to carry them through their compulsory schooling onto either further learning, the workplace or training or vocation. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Terry, and very on message in terms of today's podcast theme. Vicky, over to you. Could you tell us a little bit about your role and in, in your career to date and what do you see as the purpose of school-based education? Yeah, sure. So teaching is actually a second career for me. Um, I started off in research at the University of Wales um, and then I went to work in heritage industry in the UK for quite some time and I actually have a claim to fame. I, I lived and worked at both Winston Churchill's house and at Virginia's Wolf's country home. So a little claim to fame there. I became a teacher a couple of years before I emigrated to Australia. I'm now the Director of Staff Development and Research at Churchy. I'm a teacher, so I teach the Theory of Knowledge, a Learner's Toolkit, of course, and Visual Art. And I'm the Co-Director of the Churchy Research Centre. So in that role, I lead professional development, teacher mentoring and coaching in the school. I'm also a PhD student. I'm looking at the interaction between teachers' spatial cognitions and what I'm calling their situated uh, teaching practices to better understand how teachers can successfully operate within traditional and innovative learning environments and see what impact that has on student learning. So that's a little bit about me. In terms of purpose of a school-based education, I was actually really lucky recently I heard Fred Height speak at a conference about learning environments. Uh, he's the executive principal of Think in Adelaide. I don't know if you've seen him, but it's an amazing school that characterized by a student-centered approach and relationship to community. And I'm going to steal shamelessly from him because he said uh, the purpose of education is for learners to connect with real-world problems and opportunities to develop meaningful, purposeful engagement in, with, and for the community. And for me, that's why we send our kids to school, to be in, with, and for the community in which they're going to take a part in as adults. Thanks, Vicky. So from Terry, we've got lifelong learners. From Vicky, we've got connected learners. And you're, that, that PhD, uh, I know just before we started recording here, Vicky, you said you've been furiously writing that PhD at the moment. It sounds very interesting. I'd love to hear more about that um, at some point. Over to you, Tom. Okay, I, I think I made the opposite direction of journey to Vicky because I've gone from teaching to research. I started my uh, school career um, teaching economics and business. Um, I quickly moved to primary school where I taught year four, which is about age eight, nine. Um, and I taught for about five years in total. I was sat in a staff meeting one day looking at our, trying to make sense of our latest inspection results and data and things. And I decided I was going to take up a PhD in how we judge school performance. So I, I did a few years looking 
everything at inspection results to value-added data and trying to make sense of something that's really, really complicated to say what a good school looks like. Um, I um, became interested in evidence and research and how it can be used. I started teaching on educational leadership master's programs as a research methods handyman, if you like, and I've continued to do that, teach people how to use research, do research that's continuing my own research. I led uh, the EEF, so that's the Education Endowment Foundation's Cognitive Science in the Classroom Review. Uh, I believe the EEF is somewhat equivalent to Evidence for Learning, maybe the What Works Clearinghouse in the US as well. We completed the review in 2021 and we, we essentially asked whether there's evidence of cognitive science being applied to good effect in classrooms, in realistic classroom conditions. And I've been having uh, huge amounts of really interesting conversations since then about how we can use cognitive science in the classroom. So I'm really glad to hear to be here and continue that conversation. That's great, Tom. I, I might just jump in. That, that, is a, that is a fantastic summary and we'll make sure we link to that in the show notes for listeners. I was having a, a longer look through that this morning. It is really valuable document summary for, for listeners to go and check out. One quick question before you go into the purpose. What's the one sentence summary of what you found out about judging the quality of schools through your PhD research? That it's incredibly difficult to separate the effect of students, teachers, and curriculum. I think it's we only ever can get approximate answers. The data only pose they pose more questions than answers. So I think we have to constantly accept imperfect judgments and lines of inquiry. We can never think reach definitive judgments on that. And use of data. In, in England, we have a very high stakes approach to using data and school leaders lose their jobs and it's it's incredibly uh, high stakes, the whole thing, and it just doesn't feel appropriate given what we know about the imperfections and errors and biases of these, these measures. So yes, in good hands, good judgment professionals, professionals' hands, I think they can give us more information to know how, how things are going, but I think when we start to use them as a something more definitive, things start to go a bit wrong, and I think that's what we see in England. Thanks, Tom. The purpose of education. Yes, the purpose of education. Back as a teacher, I probably would have said something like, it's to learn lots, enjoy being at school, and to grow as people in, in, in our communities. I would have said something like that, I think. Maybe a more... Technical answer might be, I'd say something about making individuals and societies thrive. I think that is right at the core of what's happening here. I don't think there's a single answer to that. It's going to look different in different places. But I think there's something to do with academic learning, building character, social, vocational development. And it's and I think you, you know it when you see it more than being able to give a textbook answer to it. Mm. Thanks so much, Tom. Thriving, connected, lifelong learners. I like it. So today, we're lucky to have all three of you, Terry, Vicky, and Tom on the podcast because we're talking about a really exciting program on a topic very close to my own heart about developing effective learners. Essentially, you've you've come up with and, and developed and, and put into practice and also researched a thing that you've all called a learner's toolkit. And I'm really excited to, to dive into this today. I did want to start with goals. So I'll throw this one to you, Vicky. What were you hoping to achieve when you set out on the A Learner's Toolkit project? Thanks, Ollie. Well, for context, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background. Learner's Toolkit was developed as a response to a governmental move in 2019 here in Queensland from a senior school-based curriculum, which was largely internally assessed by teachers 
to an external standardised assessment for senior students. At that same time, in our school, in Terranai's school, we also implemented the IB, or the International Baccalaureate Diploma. And both these newly introduced systems um, assess larger curriculum spans and incorporate high-stakes exams, which can account up for up to 80% of a student's overall mark. And this was a completely new experience for us as a school. So we set out really with four goals in mind, and we've been working towards that. But borrowing from James Clear, we've actually been focusing on the steps of developing systems to achieve those goals ever since. But I'll get to that. But um, our first goal was to develop a toolkit of strategies to support our teachers and students to prepare for this big shift. We wanted to present all students of all ages, all abilities in our secondary school system with reliable high utility strategies based on the science of learning to help them learn, understand and retain material. So it was really very much a preparation goal there. The second goal, we wanted to greater understanding of how the science of learning can influence learners in a secondary school context. So much of our research found that tertiary and lab-based contexts, there's a fair bit of information about them, but very little to be found in a secondary school context. And as a school, we didn't want to overlay theory onto our practice, but translate it instead. We wanted to embed it into our curriculum and our teaching practices so that it was relevant really for our cohort and for our students. The third goal, we wanted a framework for organising our teacher practices that responded to two key questions that we all always ask ourselves. And that is, what do we want our students to know? And how can we help them think and learn effectively? And the final goal, there's been intention for us to collaborate with our learners and with their parents and with university partners and the education community with the aim to demystify learning to a certain extent. Sorry, listeners, we've just lost Vicky for a moment. So we're, we're going to throw to Terry to pick up where she left off on the fourth goal of a learner's toolkit. Over to Terry. So the fourth goal of the toolkit was to really focus on a question that was posed to us at some point, which was what is the long-term value of an education at Churchy? In particular, how do we measure longer-term outcomes of students who come to us from various you know starting points to where they end up with us and then more broadly speaking I guess from a bigger picture actually looking at well, what is the long-term value so how are we equipping our students for success whether that be going on to university and whether they actually are successful at university not only do they get into the courses that they want but actually do they have the requisite individual skills and strategies and behaviours that actually allow them to succeed through to students who might go and do a vocational pathway or trade onto students who go into the workforce. We have a large student population at our school who go back to their farms because we have a large boarding population. And I guess it was one of those questions that get asked at a very high level at times. And very rarely, I, I do feel that schools, they, they might have a fluffy answer some sort of nebulous stat that this number of students get into their first preference. But the question is, do you actually set them up post getting into university studies? That's great. That's great, Terry. And that's, I mean, I think that's such an important question for us to ask because so often, you know, the the way that measurement of uh, around the quality of a school, especially with comparisons of ATAR results, which is a similar to SATs or 
uh, A levels in the in the UK and, and US. The way that's set up, and there's you know newspaper articles. Very rarely, it actually focuses on that really important long term question of how do these students actually go beyond that? You know, are we actually teaching them in such a way that we're you know cramming info into them for those end of year exams, but then they're completely left floundering when they have to be more independent at university? So kudos to all of you for taking on that really, really important question. In a nutshell, Terry, what is a learner's toolkit? So when we look at a learner's toolkit, when we first started, I guess what we did was just looked at and reviewed the literature. As Vicky sort of alluded to earlier, is that the the vast majority of stuff that we found was in the tertiary context or universities. And I guess that's the point really where failure has an economic cost. For the first time in a student's journey, where failure actually costs them as an individual. It also costs institutions. So that's sort of where we came to the assessment that rather than come up with these strategies ourselves, we looked at the literature. In particular, we looked at the systematic reviews of Dunlowski and colleagues in particular, where they actually went out and they assessed the utility. And utility for us is, for the time invested, what is the actual gain in learning? What are those strategies, those high utility strategies, in particular, the strategies that are low utility? So what we wanted to do is we wanted to identify a toolkit of strategies that students can just take up and use. And what we wanted to do is to train them those strategies that give students the best return on on their, their time and effort invested. And that's where we came up with the toolkit. And that's where we came to the identification of the six strategies. We also reviewed the work of the learning scientists, uh, Pooja Agarwal, who's in uh, retrieval practice, her organization there. We looked at what they were doing and looked at what they were identifying as those high yield strategies. And I guess what we did was rather than reinvent the wheel, we just took what the experts were saying, the preferred strategies, and we just decided to package them up in a way that was more student friendly. That's great. So, Terry, maybe you want to just give us. Though, what were those six strategies you decided to go with? So we initially had five and the five strategies and we started with the big words, retrieval practice, space practice, interleaving, dual coding and interrogative elaboration. We found that in the early stages that the big words really were somewhat of a barrier to actually getting student uptake and so we washed them down to, I guess, actions because that's what study and learning strategies are. They're actions that the individual has to do. So we have retrieve it, space it, jumble it, visualize it, connect it. And then the staff within our library were doing some extensive work on reading comprehension, in particular, the adaption of an Eagle Wolf strategy, which is somewhat prevalent in Queensland schools. And what we found was, I guess, a little gap in our initial toolkit Because we started to find with the older students, especially when they're engaging with harder and harder texts, more dense texts, fairly rigorous research, that their ability to read and comprehend effectively wasn't addressed by one, the toolkit, and two, we had this emerging consensus that teaching actually reading comprehension strategies, and therefore that came to the sixth strategy of read it. And it sort of also widened the learner's toolkit to bring in other intervention-based strategies that we were using at the school at the time. And they're the six that we've sort of bundled up and we have now sort of really focused on 
how do we engage students in particular practices that use one or more of those strategies over time. That's great. Returning back to you, Vicky, hoping the connection's strong enough to do so now. I'm quite interested because you said there were these kind of factors that drove you towards these four key questions or drove you towards this more kind of learner-centric approach. To me, it doesn't seem like the only approach you could have taken to this kind of changing curriculum environment where students had to retain content over longer periods of time. So why was it that you thought, well, the the most sensible way to address this new curriculum change, and maybe you want to talk a little bit more about that curriculum change, why you came to the conclusion that this science of learning and, and learner independent stuff was the best way to go? I think that as a school, I can't overemphasize what a fundamental shift in emphasis this was for us. It was a completely new system that we were looking at. We had been doing some initial research into the science of learning in Australia, at least, it seemed that the science of learning was quite in its infancy, particularly in, in terms of schools, but in our universities as well. And we were aware that our counterparts in the UK and so on were doing some exciting things in this area. We also made some connections with the University of Queensland and their Science of Learning Research Centre around this same time. So I guess it was a, a range of different pathways that began to to come together. You're right, there were a number of different ways we could have approached this, but this seemed to really suit both our learners. We ran some workshops, some preliminary workshops with our teachers, and with the teachers involved, they were saying, this just rings true. This is what I've instinctively known all along, but now I have actually got something around um, my practice that I can understand and I can latch on to that I've actually been doing for a long time now. So you know, for us, it really, it just fitted in with our context, I guess, and with what our teachers were doing and how they were approaching learning. I guess the last thing I'd say to that as well is the science of learning in itself, the strategies in themselves are one thing. And I know we're going to come onto this later, but we also soon realized that we had to build up um, resilience in our, in our learners, self-efficacy, to, so that they would stick with them. And so that became a second part of this equation as we began to develop a learner's toolkit. That's really helpful. Terry, back to you, because I I found the kind of the language thing quite interesting. It's, it's, it's kind of my, uh, my sense or my intuition that going with the, the full like spaced repetition interleaving these accurate words would make sense, especially in a high school, because then if students want to go and Google something or watch a YouTube video on space practice or on interleaving or on retrieval, they can they know what the word is, they can do it. Or if, if they want to read some papers or do some further study on it or a project on it, they, they know what to research. You mentioned that the kind of this academic vocabulary was a barrier in the early days. In what ways did it show up as a barrier? How did you know it was a barrier and how did you know it would be a good idea to change it to this read it, retrieve it, space it, jumble it, visualize it and connect it? So when we started, we one of the biggest mistakes that we made early on was that we just, I guess, do what we do with schools often, where we try to, I guess, attack the elephant this is an analogy I use. We had, we had an elephant, which Vicky has alluded to, in relation that our students weren't prepared for the change of the learning game that they were encountering. So we do what a lot of we did, we still somewhat do at times, attack the elephant as a whole elephant. 
and we're trying to eat and eat a whole elephant at the time. And so what we did was we we sort of had these cohort one-off sessions, maybe focused on maths per se, where we started to it became more of a lecture about say retrieval practice why is retrieval practice good who created retrieval practice what is the underlying psychology of retrieval practice as as an example because you tack the i guess the lowest hanging fruit of the strategies which is retrieve it was we looked at that and then we found out engaging with our students later is that some of them got the language but for some of them when we started to get too heavily centric on creating a narrative using evidence, using scientific jargon, etc., they really started to tune out because in many cases, it's not what, what they term efficient. The students, we've now, we're in an all-boys school and even with my own daughters, we notice a lot around student efficiency. And what's really interesting, even when you look at some of the leading cognitive scientists that we look at, they often say that you're, the goal in cognitive science sometimes when you teach, and this is often what I teach in my master's subject, is to get to the desired result as quickly as possible using the least amount of time and effort. And we found that when we distilled the language down, students just, I guess, were more likely to engage in retrieve it and space it. You know, this notion of, well, if I space out my learning and if I, and if I jumble it up, and interleaving is much more sophisticated than just jumbling. And we're not saying that we've sort of simplified the process to, the, to that point. But what we found was that when we got bogged down in the mud, it really inhibited the student take-up. And we also found that students at different points, receptive and not receptive to, I guess, that sort of higher-end knowledge about what we're trying to train them to do. And I guess we were, we were modelling and trying to get them to be much more efficient and effective, and therefore we became more efficient and effective in our language. Mm, that's great. And it, it kind of makes sense, you know, for, for students, if it sounds complicated, they're going to probably start to think that it is complicated and that, that it might be harder than it truly is. I was teaching some simultaneous stuff, equation concepts today and we were talking about unique solutions and no u- unique solutions and I think just the complexity of the language turned a few of them off and you know I had a few boys shouting out oh this is this is some pretty high-tech stuff sir and things like that so maybe there's some <laughs> some implicit messaging from the uh the language that you guys have obviously attuned yourself to and, and adapt to your program appropriately one of the things you mentioned there, Terry, that I was really interested in, you talked about, and this is something I've done myself, you kind of came out and you, you presented the research to the students and you expected them to get excited about this is retrieval practice and here are some graphs that show how effective it can be and if you only do this instead of, you know, rereading your notes, it's going to be really effective. But you talked about how that wasn't actually that effective at all. And so presumably, given that you've continued with this work, you found out some other way to kind of introduce, for example, retrieval practice to your students. What does this other way look like, Terry? So at the time when we were, I guess, licking our wounds to a degree, where we've come in really hard uh, with lots of energy, ready to transform the way things are and have met a fair bit of stubborn resistance, in particular with older students. The older students were particularly set on their ways. In many cases, we, call, we use the term crystalline. And so we were searching for better alternatives. And no matter where we looked, though, at the time, 
did we have any real answer? And then we came across by serendipity in many cases, which often happens with research, where you're in a, in, in a pit of uncertainty. And we came across Mark McDaniels and Gil uh, Einstein's Knowledge, Beliefs, Commitment and Planning Framework. And I'd just read Make It Stick, the book that uh, Mark wrote with some of his colleagues at uh, George Washington University in St. Louis. And that this, this sort of popped up in the feed. And what it focused on was this notion that often with interventions, we focus on knowledge about and knowledge how. And even as like a rugby union coach, when we, when we train students, we do often uh, sort of make errors in that training model where, we, where, we, where in essence we show them the knowledge about and knowledge how, but we actually never get beyond that. And what uh, McDaniel and Einstein really focused on was identifying within the training literature around cognitive science in particular, the science of learning, uh, cognitive psychology, was the inability for many interventions to get past the knowledge phase. And he then started to focus on the notions of beliefs, so catching into the work of uh, Zimmerman around self-efficacy, then commitment which is more than just belief. Commitment is the idea that even though I know about these strategies and I believe that they work for me and I'm, I'm sort of generating those learner behaviours of self-efficacy and task value and, and, and that intrinsic motivation though, there's the next stage, which is where they commit. And this is where I guess we see the tangents between Wendy Wood's work on habit formation in particular where what happens is you got to commit, and the commitment is, I guess, where we see that val uh, the valley of latent potential, which James Clear talks about, where students have to commit to these new strategies, even though they're not accustomed to it, even though they think it's going to work for them, but often they have to commit to these strategies for weeks on end, and often they see very little benefit directly because often exams and testing are spread out over time. And then once they have the commitment, then they plan, which is the final stage for its use, actually plan uh, the right strategy at the right time. And we call this the recipe chart, which is sort of the goal is where a student based on their subject, based on their contact, whether it's an assignment or an exam or performance, whether they can marry up the subject that they're doing with the assessment plus the, the context of, of how they're going to be judged and actually identify and use the right strategies to use at the right time. So what we found with McDaniels and Einstein's work was it was very new at the time. We read a conceptual paper early on. We've subsequently engaged with Mark over a longer term, uh, actually looking at how the knowledge, beliefs, commitment, planning framework actually not only extends to the students, but also to the teachers. Because in many cases, as Vicky said, these teachers have been using often these strategies in particular around like retrieval practice, uh, space practice. Uh, sometimes uh, you'll your visualize or dual coding, you'll see that used quite extensively. There might be some sort of thinking frameworks which sort of bring them all together. Now, for these teachers, they've gone through that knowledge, belief, commitment, planning journey somehow under their own steam. But often outside of them, similar interventions fall off with their colleagues because it just doesn't stick to it. They don't stick to the, the use of the strategy beyond 
that sort of initial euphoria around using a new strategy. And that's what we've found has been probably the greatest learning for us is that often this stuff is, is very difficult because you're training an individual student, not a whole class, but the actual individual to uptake or not something that you saying to them is going to work. But remember, when a student goes and study, they generally study by themselves, they study at home, they study isolated from the teacher, isolated from their peers, and they have to make the choice to do this or not underneath their own steam. And that's the real challenge is that, as Vicky said, it's not just the strategies, it's actually the behaviours that underpin the enacting under a student's self-direction. That's great, Terry. Tom, maybe I'll bring you in here. At what point did you kind of come into this this project and, and how were you involved in this these stages? So what one of the big findings from the Cognitive Science Review where we looked at the applied research was that there's just a very large gap between research and practice. We were seeing strategies that were incredibly effective and had a really, really strong base in the basic science, like the treatment practice. And we were seeing them working in some control settings, although you know, some, sometimes with some additional things needed, like feedback coupled with them for that to happen. But the evidence was pretty consistent when it came to demonstrating that these are good principles for learning and for, for cognition and memory. But we got to parts of the review which looked at applying these, and the, the effect sizes were pretty small. Like we're having real trouble getting principles that we know are really effective working at scale in realistic conditions. So one of the things we did in the review was to explore this with teachers, we talked about how they experienced them and difficulties they've had, and we tried to bring in a lot more, a bigger range of kind of practical uh, considerations. So one of the things we said in the report is, well, we've got some really great principles here, but there's so much more we need to know about how we can actually make these work in realistic contexts. And then happily, um, some time after the report being released, Terry sent me a tweet and said, oh, I've uh, seen your report. And I mean, I said, tell me more. I want to hear more and uh, find out what you're doing. Because for me, this job of translating and operationalizing and embedding and translating into schools is, is the frontier, I think, for cognitive science and education at the minute. And wh- whether I'm contributing or not, I'm certainly learning a lot from um, what's going on. Thanks, Tom. And I couldn't agree more. Like there's this stuff that's, you know, has been working in isolated pockets. Like there's these sub-communities of medical students, language learners who've been using, you know, effective learning technologies for years or even decades, but it just hasn't made its way into mainstream education. But there's so much promise if we can just get it right. Back to you, Terry. You talked about this uh, McDaniel and Einstein knowledge, belief, commitment, planning framework and how that started to move into that kind of belief and commitment puzzle pieces or bring, bring those puzzle pieces to the table in addition to just that, that knowledge piece. If we, let's think about an example. So I think before I mentioned retrieval session, you're teaching students about retrieval. How does one of your sessions actually include activities or, or information that builds that kind of belief and commitment? So the school made a significant investment, even though it wasn't monetary, it was time. And so we saw these green shoots and there was a particular class of kids who who have just graduated recently and we started to notice that when you make this 
at the class or, or individual layer, not the whole cohort, not large groups of students, but much more personalised. And I don't like to use the term personalised learning because I think it's been hijacked, which will probably get me in trouble, uh, hijacked by particular groups of people. But personalised learning is actually where you actually not have different learning activities or what for the individual, but actually focus the instruction and the model of the experience on the, 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 the current setting that the student is at. And that's where we found the greatest value, where we started, the school gave us time in the timetable, which is absolutely gold. And we focused on embedding their strategies directly into their immediate curriculum. In particular, so for example, we would focus a cycle. We have a two-week timetable where we'd have a cycle and we'd focus on, let's say, retrieval practice in languages. As you said before, there's this inbuilt mechanism within languages, namely around flashcards, which has been this inbuilt strategy of using flashcards in language education for quite some time. So we would actually train the students up in terms of how they build flashcards for their chosen language. Now, we have four languages at school, which makes things a bit interesting because you've got a class of students that might come from three or four different languages and the nuance in the language is a little bit different, which makes things that much more difficult, which is an unforeseen barrier. But what we would do is we'd actually focus and give them time where they would build flashcards, then they would do think activities like think, pair, share, where they would pair up and see other students' flashcards because we found within the literature that often students, when they make flashcards, they make them at what I guess Robert Bjork and Elizabeth Bjork talk about is at their level. And if students are creating their own flashcards, which is often representing their current level of understanding, so they're, they're operating only within their zone of proximal development, if they use those flashcards over and over and over again, they're practicing their own current level. And that creates what the Bjorks talk about, the illusion of competency, where if students start to see other students work, they start to create shared decks of flashcards. Then what we're doing is we're giving them the time and the space and the direct embedding that allows them to practice, learn about the strategy, practice this strategy, refine the strategy, see a good example similar to what Tom was talking about, feedback coming in. And then the hope is then they leave and then within our learning management system at school, we would generally set a task within that two-week cycle uh, on which they would uh, upload an exemplar of their work. The whole idea is we're developing this cycle of learn, apply, embed, learn, apply, embed, and trying to get the cycle of, of, of this, this use that's directly relevant because we found that when you make it relevant to their immediate context, it's more likely going to stick. Now, the challenge is it doesn't stick for everyone at the same time. We see some students who are well advanced. We see some students who I guess are the early adopters who will take up and run because they have the learning behaviors and the disposition that are ready to make things run because they can see that it's going to be valuable for them. But then we have like that cautious majority. You see that bell curve in a lot of ICT integration uh, work where you've got the, the cautious majority who sort of sit there. And then you've got a fairly stubborn uh, minority, the laggards at the end, who we've actually found are very stubborn and resistant to change because their dispositions and learning behaviours aren't in a situation that are 
going to suit them to adopt and embed these strategies post the lesson. Mm. So where's this lesson happening? So this lesson happens within the school timetable. We have one lesson a fortnight cycle and the lesson is basically we've got this continuum from year seven to ten that starts off in a, in a very focused metacognitive layer of the first unit we, we, we've got is called fighting forgetting because I think forgetting is one of the biggest enemies of, of learning over time and then we cycle through and go through building understanding it's very heavily impacted by Efrat First's work and her learning pyramids of how you build understanding of a strong foundation of knowledge over time. And then we eke out and we, we go into units such as like building good habits, own it, track it. And then the latter units are what we call like drive the bus, where over that period of time, a student is exposed once a fortnight to these strategies. It's embedded into the direct subject context over time. There's less of us and more of them. And then the whole idea is by the time we model this over a four-year process, we've given them all the knowledge, we've trained them as best we can, we've given them the feedback along the way. And what we're hoping to do by the end of year 10 is that they have a toolkit of strategies that they know works for them in particular contexts. We've modelled, we've done all those sort of demonstrating scaffolding practice over time. And then we sort of let them go. But it's not often students will still engage with us post in through year 11 and 12, where they'll come for advice. And that's sort of where what the program looks like. Because what we found was that if you leave it too late to year 11 and 12 at the point of performance, it's the same as if you're wanting to train an elite athlete. If, if you go up to, like, for example, we have the state of origin in Queensland and New South Wales, if I go up to a, a representative player and say, hey, mate, I want you to change your tackling technique five days before a grand final or a state of origin game, player's going to look at you and go, nah, whatever I've got has got me to this point. It must be pretty good. I'm nearly at that point of performance. And that's why we focus on the younger students within our school. Mm, couldn't agree more. So I'm still I'm still getting my head around this, and I'm I'm, I'm going to ask a lot of questions to really get into the nitty gritty of how these sessions work. But earlier you mentioned that you bring together students from different language things. So just sticking with this retrieval example and this flashcards example, how is the class made? Who who joins it? Is everyone joining it? And and how does that work? So it's a timetable subject. So year seven, eight, nine, and ten students generally have at Churchy a core class, which is generally a class based on uh, particular subject choices. For example, in year seven, the students are arranged together based on just the subjects and the electives that the students pick. So it's a subject within the timetable. And this is the challenge, I guess. And what Tom was talking about earlier is that the lab isn't the school. And there's so many nuances of timetabling and staffing and all sorts of different things going on that we have this one 50-minute period a fortnight where we're trying to, I guess, equip these students, which makes it not the best lab-based scenario. And that's some of the feedback that we've got when we put journal articles out to be reviewed. Often they're reviewed in cognitive science journals. And the reviewers come back and they'll talk about dosage or they'll talk about controls. And the issue is that a school isn't a lab. 
it's ver virtually impossible to ensure that every student has the same dosage because the timetable, some students might have five of these classes a term, some of these, these students might have two, depending on where their timetable class falls in a fortnight. You might have public holidays that, that cancel out three or four Mondays in a row, which is what we've had recently in term two here in Queensland. So basically, we have this, this subject which sort of floats in space where we often make alliances with uh, heads of faculty and heads of subject and we try to get the coverage pretty – we try to make it even over time, but even that's difficult. And I think Tom found in his review that there's a lot of stuff on math, science and languages. There's very little on English and humanities, let alone the arts and other subjects. And, yeah, so we have this – we call it a continuum where we have these lessons that fall within cycles and we try to make it as relevant to the curriculum, which is difficult because you've got a two-week span. And it's aimed to be as applied as possible. And it, it does get very messy. No doubt. Vicky, I'll throw to you to add a little bit more colour to this question around exactly how these sessions are run. Sure. So, I'll just give you an example from a Year 7 class. Fairly recently, we were working with the head of Year 7 maths. And the idea was to embed a brain dump which is a, obviously a retrieval practice into the end of year or end of term, sorry, exam. So what we did was the brain dump became part of the assessment. It was the very first things the students had to do when they sat down before they then did their exam. It wasn't marked, but it was a 10-minute session where they could actually just put everything onto the paper. So in those ALT sessions before that, we focused very much on how the students could do a brain dump, looking at different types of brain dumps that they could use, how they could connect information and so on. And we used worked examples, faded examples, a range of retrieval games as the students began to engage with the process of putting all that information onto the paper. And because we then embedded that into the assessment at the end of term, they got to practice everything that they had learnt through the ALT session. So does that give you a bit of an idea of how we actually embed it? Yeah, that's great because, I mean, that's often a huge motivator for students, right? So the age-old question, is this going to be on the test, right? And if the answer is yes, then, then they're much more likely to do it and they can see the relevance of it and, and it's kind of a, a Trojan horse because they do it because it's on the test but then they go, oh, hold on, this actually helps me. This actually helps me order my thoughts. This helps me to take a step back and think, well, what is all the stuff I have to know for this test and, and do I, is it really in my head when I try to write it down or, or is it not there when and is it just kind of blank um so that's totally totally powerful and part of that though was also trying to reduce their cognitive load in the exam itself as well because they had that opportunity to offload right at the beginning it meant that they could then really focus on reading through their paper after that and and so on and so forth so there were lots of practical elements to that and it's very much part of and this is little year sevens part of teaching them about the strategy, but also beginning to build their belief in the strategy that it could work for them so that later on, hopefully, as they go through the school, they could commit and then obviously start planning their study strategies accordingly. Mm, yeah. I think, yeah, that's such a valuable thing, building to the assessment, but also it's a transferable skill, right? Because even if 
at year 12, there isn't the year 12 exam doesn't say spend the first 10 minutes doing a brain dump. They could actually do that if they wanted to. If they were like, here's five quotes I know I want to use in my year 12 English exam, I'm just going to quickly write them down at the start so I don't have to think about them and hold them in my working memory and then come back to them when I need them. Are there some other kind of things you did? So, I mean, the flashcard example to me is really interesting. I just finished running a five, five or six week study in a year 10 French class trying to teach students to use a flashcard program. And I've faced some of those commitment challenges that Terry mentioned. So Vicky, can you tell us a little bit more? Is there something similar to this assessment thing that was used with the flashcards that built that commitment and that belief? Flashcards are very much, uh, in, in my ALT classes, an individual pursuit. Some students find them really helpful, others don't. What we try and do is present a suite of different techniques that they could use for retrieval. And we provide scaffolds and examples, etc., so that they can then choose. I do have quite an interesting example from year nine, which isn't flashcards, but it's actually using Cornell notes, which the students find really, really difficult. But we begin to fade out. We give them fully exa- full working example Cornell notes and start fading out. And we used it for a history assessment um, a couple of years ago. By the time they're in year nine, as Terry says, we're starting to try and get them to think about what we call desirable difficulties. So we're trying to get them to engage with a technique like for you, Ollie, the flashcards for us, it was Cornell notes that they don't find natural to them necessarily, but they need to persist because, as I said, we start embedding this into the assessment. And it was quite interesting with this particular year nine cohort. We spent a whole term building up their history Cornell notes and teaching them how to take notes while the teacher is talking and so on and so forth. The interesting thing about that was the grades on the whole actually went up at the end of that assessment piece. But what was really interesting was when we asked the students, well, We now know, because your grades have gone up, that you can use Cornell notes and they're an effective way of note-taking and for helping you remember and so on. Will you use them again? And the interesting thing was so many of them said, no, I wouldn't touch them. And despite the evidence of the grade going up, what they because they found them difficult, they associated difficulty and effort with ineffective strategy. So they only felt that something was effective if it was easy for them rather than if it was, you know, in any other way. So when we say we're trying to build belief in a strategy, and maybe it's the same with your flashcards as well, they have to really think that it's going to work for them in that task. And sometimes not even grade um, evidence is enough. That's depressing. I'm depressed. What what I'd add in here is it reminds me of some of the studies, especially around there's some famous studies around retrieval practice, which it's not just looking at how well it works compared to the reading or restudying. There's studies which have looked at students' perceived learning effectiveness on it, and there's some really stark results in there. And what it is is that you have students reread things, and they it feels familiar. It feels like, I know this, this feels, I feel competent, I feel I have the answers. And then you give them a test on the same material, and it feels hard because they don't know all of it, and they only know some of it, and it feels a challenge. And what students remember from that is this lovely learning experience where they felt competent and they knew things and this hard learning experience where they really struggled with it. But it's the struggling which has actually caused a lot of the learning. And So there's a couple of studies which have demonstrated this really well that students sometimes counterintuitive 
for them. And it's captured in the phrase um, Vicky's just used there, desirable difficulties, and it's popularized by Bjork and Bjork here, that some things are good for us, even though we don't like them, even though they feel hard, and it might be because they're hard that they're so effective for us. So to some extent, it creates a barrier for students in using these. It's it's a bit like getting them to eat their broccoli. It's it's good for them. You have to tell it's good for them. You might not like it, but it, honestly, it's it's really in your best interest. And that's a tricky thing to sell, I think. It is. One of the uh, methods that we use in the Learner's Toolkit to try and get over that is we um, have developed some study trackers for our students. These are really interesting because we ask our students to perhaps take a, a test, a time test or something, and actually look at what they know rather than what they think they know. And then on the study tracker, we have a, a, a traffic light system, green, yes, I've got it, amber, I've got part of it, and then red, no, I still have work to do. The reason why we do this is two reasons. One, we use it to help them with their retrieval practice. But secondly, students tend to, when they sit down to revise, they'll default to the thing that they already know because, as you say, Tom, that's comfortable and it gives them that sense of, oh, I'm okay with this, when actually what we want them to be doing is sitting down and focusing on the things that they don't know, they think the things that they have to do further research on, ask their teacher about, or just simply practice more. And so the study tracker is quite a good way of getting the students, and quite a very simple way, getting students to see what they actually have to focus on, even if it's difficult. Mm, that's great. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion today, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to a spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will include a summary of some of the key ingredients that the Learner's Toolkit team have found to be crucial to making the science of learning work in the school setting, as well as an additional resource list about the science of learning that will direct you to helpful tips, tricks and techniques, as well as a deeper understanding around building more effective lifelong learners. So, if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, an interactive transcript, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of this show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the recommended donation of $5 per month. That's a lot of value and a warm feeling of contributing to the ongoing production of the show for only the price of a cup of coffee per month. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Terry, Vicky and Tom. I'm going to go from the start here. Like, So, I'm looking at a spiral diagram, which we'll include in the show notes. And this talks about, Terry talked about it before. This is kind of the, I guess you could call it the scope and sequence or the curriculum map of your a learner's toolkit. We start from the middle, unit one, fighting, forgetting, unit two, uh, building understanding, unit three, building good habits, four, desirable difficulties, five, belief and commitment, six, own it, seven, me and my future, and eight, 
drive the bus. We'll see how far we go, <laughs> how far we get. But I'm just like I'm just so interested in this and what you're doing and, and the impact it's having. In fighting forgetting, what do students learn in, in in that first unit? And and also tell us, you know, when this is introduced and how long it goes for and things like that. Maybe I'll throw to you for this, Terry. So fighting forgetting is right at the front. Um, we're at that stage where our continuum has been in place for a few years. So the goal in the long term is year sevens walk in. For us, it's, you know, their first stage of high school. And it's where the training wheels or the wheels start to get wobbly on some students. Um, they come in from a primary school education. Uh, and again, I don't want to get in trouble, but often they're coming in where the assessment or the knowledge or the, the testing regimes don't really push the student. And then they come to us in high school and then the games change. The rules of the game change, assessment changes, everything changes. And this is where we start to find students start to get a bit wobbly. Some students have good enough ability and, and, and so forth to survive for a period of time. But what, we, what we're what focusing on, and this is also shaped by, I guess, my own experience as a student being a very uh, low achieving student and actually never understanding why I just couldn't get any better. And what we started to focus on was this, this notion as, as you draw out the length between assessment or the amount of work, forgetting becomes the number one enemy. The reason why students can't finish tests in a timely fashion or miss questions or draw a blank is because I guess they've fallen victim to the famous Ebenhaus forgetting curve. And what we focus on there is this notion that if we can attack forgetting, we're going to place our students in a much better position than to build their understanding later on. And again, this is my our own failing over time. Often we've brought in building understanding as the, the forerunner and then worried about forgetting later on. When we actually need to build an Afrat's first work on, the, on her knowledge pyramids or pyramids of understanding is that if you don't have a strong foundational knowledge, you can't do anything. And over time, we, uh, you know, you use the, the old analogy of, of if you build your house on a rock of foundational knowledge or you build your house on, on the sand of transient knowledge. Uh, who's going to last the better when the storm comes later on in terms of when the stakes start to really increase? Terry, so I'm wondering, wondering what, you, what you do. I, like, I couldn't agree more. How do you impart this to the students? How do you get them to understand this and believe it? Yep. So we focus early on in the initial stage in term one, they do the quick review. Quick review is a lesson starter which uses retrieval, space, and jumble. Also has feedback. Lots of teachers at school use their quick review at the start of the lesson because what it does is it allows them to ask questions or problems from yesterday, last week, and a month ago. So we use a very simple scaffold. The whole idea is that we're trying to for students to actually understand that they, that they actually have to retrieve from more than just what they're doing in homework. And so we have to keep showing them in maths, in science and languages because they're the three subjects that, you know, Tom alluded to, these strategies work well for. And we basically, over the first term, basically just model, teach, do, model, teach, do, where we actually give them 
examples of good quick reviews, poor quick reviews. We look at the, the number of questions that you should ask, uh, the types of questions that you should ask, uh, actually understanding something as simple as your course or unit overview is actually useful for actually planning out and figuring out what you're going to study in your quick review. So is the quick review because a lot of schools do like a daily review or a, a do now, right? And that's usually something that the teacher creates with a bunch of questions. Is that what you're talking about, a quick review, or is this something that students do independently? Yeah, so the teachers will do it, but then what we're actually wanting them to do is for them to do their own quick reviews where they actually sit down within a 15 or 20-minute session where they open up their textbook or their OneNote, which has their full continuum of work, where they use the, the, the spacing analogy of yesterday, last week, and a month ago, or unit one, unit two, unit three, or term one, term two, term three, where they go in, they identify something, they just go and take existing material. They don't come up with the question themselves, they take existing material, which speeds up the process, which means that they're doing more doing rather than coming up with the question and they just practice this. And then what you'll find is teachers will start to, when they, not only are they modeling it in their classes, but then they start setting it for, for homework or study sessions. Some classes that use this quite well, and we see this starting to pervade the notion, and it sort of goes back to your flashcards, is that students achieve very little when they make a quick review because we're trying to tell them to use the existing resource. And so, what we're actually wanting them to do is to engage in the strategy of doing a quick review where we give them worksheets and resources, endless amounts of work that they can readily use, but it's the actual action of doing the question, practicing the question, checking whether they're right or wrong, giving them that feedback. And so, what we're trying to do is build in a fairly concise 15 to 20 minute study routine that they're using three strategies at once and we're trying to get them into the cycle of using a quick review strategy in three subjects and then we go to the brain dump which Vicky spoke about earlier. Cool let's stick on the quick review for a second I'm, I'm really interested by because in my year eight class in particular my year, year eight math class at the moment I'm using uh, starters that include a number of questions that span right from the start of the year up to the present and I've emphasized on a number of occasions the way that I plan them out. I literally show the the students the spreadsheet that I use to plan it and I show them that, you know, these are the hard concepts that I've identified. They're the tricky ones based upon your tests and stuff. Here's how many times you're going to see these. You know, if you put in effort on this day and this starter on this concept, it's going to come up again in three days. You're going to be able to consolidate it. If you don't put in effort on this day, you're not going to be able to consolidate it. You're going to be learning it again or forgetting it again. And then all this stuff is going to come up at the end. But there's still often a lack of effort, I find, it seems, to really dig deep and go, oh, you know, how, do I, how can I get my head around this today because I know it's coming up again? You know, how do you kind of infuse them with that hunger to do the hard work? Because we've all acknowledged it is hard work, this learning is hard stuff. How do you infuse them with that? And where are these students at by the end of year seven, for example, if this is a focus for year seven? Are they all doing independent quick reviews or do you have those laggards? What does it look like? So what we're wanting to do is we use a lot of exemplars because it sort of goes back to what we, what we spoke about with the illusion of their own competency. Students, if they are left to their own devices, will always 
there are always exceptions to this, but they'll find the easiest way out and they'll practice the most menial task to show that they've completed and they've done their study. What we try to do is we're training them to actually pitch their work, where they're pitching their work at the limit and like we give them a lot of scaffolds. So, for example, when we say yesterday, you pick three questions of low, medium and hard or, or what Vicky spoke about before, we use the scaffold of the traffic lights. And what we're wanting them to do is in the initial stages is to get into a routine of actually doing their own quick reviews. The aim is, now there's a very lofty aim, that students will be doing two to three quick reviews for a subject each week by the end of year seven. We know that some students do do it and those students do exceptionally well as the year progresses because our assessment compounds, they accumulate on top of each other. Are they usually in class or are they, by the end of the year, are they quick reviews at home? That Where, where do they sit? They're quick reviews, so they're doing them by themselves under their own steam. The thing that we're starting next term, we're making a fairly large investment, is that we've found that, you know, some students do their stuff on, online through quizzes. Some students uh, will do stuff on their devices. Some students do workbooks. So we're actually bringing in a study journal, which is just a simple notebook. And what we're actually uh, looking at moving forward, which is sort of the future of the research work moving forward, is to actually track student practice. Actually physically in our ALT sessions, get our teachers to actually start to engage and look at the nature of student practice. Because this is the key. This is the, this is the black box. Because like I said earlier, when a student practice, they're practicing by themselves often. And so the quality of that practice lays pretty much squarely at the student layer. You can give students multiple, multiple exemplars, but what we're really wanting them to do is train and do them themselves. We've seen some fantastic like progressions of students who'd start to do this by themselves. There's a, a student who got into ANU last year for us who used the tracker in a quick review every day before he came to school and walked away with a perfect math score last year. And he was nowhere near a perfect math score when he left us in year 10. But what he started to do is he started to realize that there's this routine of practice. The textbook has all these answers. Worksheets have all these answers. And rather than trying to come up with their own stuff, he would just periodically and over a period of time, what you're, what you're hoping them to do is to start to see, oh, I've, Sim, it's what you were saying before, consolidation. Because homework by itself does very little. And you think about how much time students spend on homework. So where we are moving forward, and this is the focus for us moving to the next semester, is we'll actually be tracking through a very simple notebook, the nature of student practice. We'll start to understand, and we're starting to see examples already of the different dispositions of the student and their achievement affects the nature of their actual practice. What's really interesting and we go back to the quick reviews, we did um, a study journal with our eights and nines using the quick review strategy. What's interesting is that low-achieving students generally don't listen to the advice, number one. Number two, they very rarely use the resources that are available to them. Three, they try to come up with their own questions themselves, which means they're only practicing what they can do. We notice that the really high-achieving students, they'll take the advice, they'll apply the advice, and then they'll actually check whether they're right. Whereas the middle of the road students will sort of fall halfway. 
they'll heed the advice, they'll apply the advice, but often very rarely do they get spacing right. Interleaving is a bit higgly-piggly in terms of application and very rarely do they check and assess using feedback. Mm, that's great. And, oh, and this is, resonates so much. I, the, the number of times I check my students' textbook work, it's like, which exercise have you done? I've done 7A, 7B, 7C. Have you checked them? No. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, are you just doing the wrong thing like 50 times in a row and embedding a Like, uh, it's just so confusing. So the fact that you guys are trying to get to the bottom of this, I'm eternally grateful. And Tom's got his hand up, so please enlighten me further, Tom. Well, just to add, I mean, it's harking back to the discussion of desirable difficulties and student perceptions. It's, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions is between performance and knowledge. It's we, we readily equate being able to do something, be able to say something with knowing it. And, and that's what I'm seeing in this description of really great students. It's they don't quite trust the fact they've done it once. They want to know if it's really there, whether they've actually got it. And, and that's why they space, because they want to know if it's still there in a week's time. They, that's why they rehearse or go back to the original text, because they, they worry about their own recollection of it. And yeah, I, I think that distinction between performance and knowledge is, is absolutely key. And I think as teachers, we all get this moment where we think, great, they've got it. And the question is, well, how do you know they've got it? Have they got it because they've just done it? Have you just modelled it for them? Is it there and will it still be there in a week? And I think students need to ask that question too. Mm. I'd just like to add that um, for those students that Terry's describing who are the weaker students in terms of, you know, not driving their own um, study journals and so on, I think they're not left behind in a sense either though because, because the ALT sessions are very much designed with the subject specialists as well, what's happening is we're teaching the strategy and keeping boys going in the ALT sessions, but exactly the same retrieval practices are happening in the classroom in their regular lessons as well. So that even if they're not, unfortunately, taking this on or pushing themselves if they do try it at home, they're still getting that opportunity every single lesson at the beginning of every single lesson to do the same task as well. So we're sort of, you know, going back to your Trojan horse idea, even then we're trying to get these strategies to align, even if the the child isn't yet at that stage where they can drive their own study. That's great. Another thing you mentioned, and this was something that Terry mentioned earlier, is that he kind of talked about moving from the class or the cohort level to actually looking at the individual level. And, and the comments that a lot of you are making are around the re- sort of resolution you have about, you know, there's these intransigent learners who really won't change and there's the, there's the early adopters. H- how are you getting this level of, of um, resolution on the uptake of the strategies or otherwise? So we do, and again, this the difficulty with what we're doing is it's it's such a long term view, and what we've started to do is we we have a metric, we have a repeated measures survey. So I did my PhD using a, a single subject research design, which is often you see in applied health, where you measure a person for a while, you give them an intervention, and you see whether it works. And the challenge is is that that's really what good, I guess, practice looks like in schools where you actually want to follow a student for a bit, then you give them an intervention and then you see how they go. 
So we have a repeated measures device which comes from other people's surveys um, that we think do a good job in terms of looking at these, the, like the, the actual transition of a student. What sort of strategies are they picking up? What are their preferred strategies? How many strategies are they using? Uh, and then tying that to, the, say, their learner beliefs, their behaviours. Uh, we look at elements of their uh, anxiety and fear of failure. We do look at the big five as well. And what we're looking at doing is we, we're looking at creating, I guess, a learner profile. Uh, there's a lot of talk around learner profiles at the moment. We see there's a group called New Metrics at the University of Melbourne who, I guess, are looking at learner profiles as replacing an ATAR. We see the IB use a learner profile. But where we want this to go is we want this to be seen as the learner profile of the individual. And we're trying to come up with a really simple way of representing a student's longitudinal journey so that they can see it. And this is a real challenge for schools because schools are often judged on how a group performs or how a class performs or how a cohort performs. And similar to what Tom was saying before, is some, and Vicky, is sometimes we, we, we're training them in, in something and we're exposing them to something. And sometimes we're planting that seed and sometimes the seed doesn't come to fruition for a year, two years, three years down the track. And so where we're getting and that's the other focus of the next half of the year, is to actually develop a very simple, readily available through software progression where every time a student does our survey, it goes into the mix. And the whole idea is we're wanting to plot, I guess, in the most basic sense, the progression of an individual. And then we can start to overlay other things that we're starting to notice about the various factors that impact an individual's ability to take up or not take up, you know, something that as a school we believe is good for them. And that's a real challenge. The other element that we're looking at doing is also bringing parents into the picture. And Vicky and I are going to run a learner's toolkit for parents as a pilot. And we're wanting to see how parental messages actually impact or not the uptake or not of the strategies and this is the challenge for us i guess publishing this work is because it's sort of we've never had work rejected so readily in the last five or six years that we get up working together on this is that we've done work on learning environments and it gets published readily because it's easy you know like here you're in a normal classroom here, you go to a new classroom and let's just look at the difference. But this is so personalized that we can't control the myriad of factors. And so when we, you know, when we submit much of this work, it gets rejected by various groups because it doesn't quite meet the requirements or the criteria that that particular field is looking at because it's right at that intersection. And I guess that's a challenge for schools moving forward is that schools can do fantastic research. And I think that there's a real paradigm starting to change in Australia, which is reflected in the UK, where schools are starting to do some really, really interesting work, but it's how do you scale that out and how do you make sure what you're doing is good? Because as one reviewer said to one of our journal articles that they rejected, the reason why your intervention's working is not because it's working, it's because you're in a well, uh, a privileged single sex boys' school and anything would work. So we're going to reject your work anyway, which is a real challenge. Yes, that is a real challenge. <laughs> that researcher might like to 
try to work in your context for a while and uh, see how they go with their own interventions. Tom, we've talked a little bit about barriers to kind of science or learning programs already. Did you want to add to this narrative around some of the things that act as challenges and barriers, both at Churchy, but also within the research? What I would say about it is that, and and actually I was was interested in Terry's comments there about publishing. I think that there is this divide between academic knowledge and ways of justifying thinking about things and practical uh, knowledge and what, what that looks like. And it's a really is a really interesting intersection. I think there are some some publications and some people out there who do a better job of of, of seeing these two things side by side. But my um, reflection here is on what else we can say about why this is difficult. It's to notice that teaching and schooling is this it's this big messy thing with so many so many variables, and these variables aren't fixed. They're day to day. You have to respond to things moment by moment, and it's. When you come to cognitive science, that's all been boiled down to a very precise thing about cognition and how that works. And when people talk about, well, why, why can't we get this into practice? People often use the phrase implementation. And there's, there's this kind of notion that there's this best way of doing it, this kind of true idea. And almost teachers are messing it up a little bit as they're trying to get it to work. And I think it's the, I think it's the wrong metaphor for what my metaphor is more of a, it's a piece of a jigsaw. There's a big jigsaw, which we would call education. And in that, we would put quite a lot of things. And it's exactly the content of this kind of conversation, really. Learner motivation, prosaic uh, banality of timetable planning, curriculum areas. There's this big education jigsaw is a really big thing. And it's a really hard thing to grasp at the same time. The cognitive science piece of the jigsaw is just one of them. So... That's one of the things that I think makes this so tricky and is the big barrier. And I think it's the same for students as well. And I think that's why it's, it's hard for us to, to cross this. And it doesn't help when research such as this tries to get that slightly bigger picture and piece together things in a slightly more kind of open context. And, uh, and if I could put the focus on it of where, you know, what thinking is needed, what's missing, what are the missing pieces of the jigsaw here, it's precisely the things that we as educators know are immediately important of knowing the students, knowing the curriculum and knowing the teaching. I think when you, if you want to understand what's going on in a school, you, that's exactly what you look for. Who are the kids? What are you teaching them? And, you know, well, how are you teaching? How are you going about that? And these are variables which have been controlled out of the cognitive science. So a lot of the cognitive science, we sort of accuse it of this in our report, is quite teacher-proofed. We do experiments which use scripted lessons or literally have teachers sat in the corner of their own classroom watching a PhD student, let's say, teach something. And that's fine for getting at the cognitive principles, but it's not great for getting at the teaching principles. And so the job is thinking through the cognitive science principles alongside everything we know about feedback curriculum, pupils, uh, particular lessons. And the worst thing about it is as well that you can get this really good general understanding, but you'd have to do that for every single class and every single subject. It's so contextualized. And one of the, just to respond to Terry's point about scale-up, one of the things we get wrong about scale-up is we see it as a model that we can replicate easily. Whereas I think it's often better to see that it's embodied. There are people here who have learned things. There are 
pupils who have learned how to employ strategies. There are teachers who have learned how to do strategies. And we can't, unfortunately, we, we can't replicate Terry, Vicky, and colleagues. We can't clone them. If we could, that's how we would scale up. It's the people we need to, to scale up. So that's the really tricky thing. It's we often try and scale up using the model or the ideas, and actually it's the embodied experience of people which we want to transfer, and that's just so hard to spread around. That's a slightly rambling answer, but, I mean, it's, I think it's a really challenging problem um, which we're working on here. Mm. Well, I mean, that is a great question because it sounds like you've, Terry and Vicky, you're kind of running these sessions within some sort of what would traditionally be called pastoral time or home group time or home groups at least, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, who is teaching these sessions if they're all running simultaneously or at similar times and how have you skilled those people up to be able to do that? They're not running simultaneously. They are at all different points. They're, they're an actual lesson in the timetable. So we have a lot, I can't remember quite how many, about 30 teachers um, teaching this subject I'll let Terry speak a bit more about it, but we have year group coordinators who disseminate information out to everyone who's teaching that year group so that the content gets out to everyone. We have had training and coaching sessions with our teachers about the science of learning and how we are embedding this in our curriculum. As I said, it's not just the ALT teachers who are invested in this. They're also working closely with colleagues um, in the subject areas as we very much focus this on real-life assessment and, and, and the stuff that the kids actually really need to know so that there's a connection between what's being taught in the session and what's being taught in the classroom, as we've already said. But it is, it's been a, a really big school effort to um, develop that language, that common language amongst us all, and that's been part of our professional learning and development over the last three years. And when we look at it, it's, I guess we talked about earlier about the, that shared language, and the real challenge when it comes to evaluating the impact of this is that there's a lot of times in which and then we use the term dosage as a really good example. So the dosage, when we look at the program as it sits on a perfect school calendar that doesn't have public holidays and athletics carnivals and excursions and exams, you know, the dosage is between four to five lessons a term. But when those lessons fall, has a massive impact on, I guess, the efficacy of what we do. Then the challenge is, is that we had a paper rejected because we couldn't quantify and keep a consistent dosage of the intervention. And as Vicky said, we have teachers who might not teach ALT in their timetable, but they see it modelled and discussed in their faculties. In particular, and I can speak about maths and science because they're the faculties that I operate in, is where we actually have conversations and some people are for what we do and some people are a little bit against what we, what we have because of the focus, I guess, that's on it. Often we, we at, at tension points between, I guess, we talk about, and this is, again, we are very much knowledge first. This, this entire program really focuses on this notion of, of improving student knowledge first, but also knowledge of what's a good strategy, what's a poor strategy, but then from that knowledge then comes that understanding what you spoke about earlier, Ollie, about how students know when to use it, how and why. 
And what we've got is we've basically got this organic bottom up. And that's the other challenge that we have is this is not something that you can roll out in one or two PD sessions. This is four years of guerrilla warfare in many cases where you get an opportunity where someone invites you in, someone will invite Vicky and I into their subject. They're saying, this is what we're doing at the moment. Have you got any advice for us about how we could do X, Y, and Z? Or uh, a head of faculty might come to Vicky and myself saying, oh, look, the results from our recent assessment aren't good. What are your thoughts? I might get a housemaster who, and this is where I guess the real the real stuff starts to happen when you have a housemaster with a student who, from a partial sense, is struggling, and they might come to Vicky or myself or one of the other staff, and it's very organic and there's no real set process. We don't really have one, which is something that we've been talking about for a while, where you actually sit down and start working with students. And that's one-on-one stuff that makes the biggest change. An example was there was a student who came in who's never been able to finish a maths exam in his entire schooling journey. Him, him and his parents come in with the housemaster and the student's starting to struggle. He doesn't finish exams, which means his results are, are getting declining over time. We sit down with him. We reinforce what they're doing in ALT with the strategies. We sort of give him some focused work, some, in essence, an intervention in itself. And at the end of last term, the student runs up to me smiling goes I finished my maths exam for the first time ever and I got a B for the first time ever and they're the things that make this work and the challenge is is when you have these whole school programs is that if you go top down and we've made the mistake in the past of trying to do this top down it doesn't work where it's all about as Vicky talked about working with individuals working with faculties trying to find the Trojan horse to make it work and to try to equip the students and the teachers at the same time. And then the parents, which is something that we're looking at moving on because they control, I guess, the home environment, which is largely where a lot of this stuff happens. It's so tricky because, as you say, I mean, <laughs> you you talk about it as guerrilla warfare, Terry, over like four years. It's it's a sustained long-term challenge. and. The temptation is because you can get results by doing really, you know, explicit top-down teaching and just drilling the kids and the teachers doing all the work for them. You can get really good results like that, right? Even within a changing curriculum environment where you're teaching and students have to learn content over two years, you can still get results like that. So, when you're trying to promote this self-regulated stuff and this student-directed stuff, it's it's so tempting to go, oh, that didn't work. I taught, told them about the strategy. They, they tried it out for one lesson and they never did it again. Even though I showed them all the research, uh, I'm just going to take it back into my own hands because the stakes are high as well, right? So it's just, it's so great that you obviously have that as a school, that level of commitment led by yourself, Terry and Vicky, to not ask, you know, will this work? But to ask the question, how can we make this work? And continuing continually asking that question over and over again and iterating uh, and innovating on the fly and as you go in that kind of bottom-up approach because, you know, you never know when you're going to stumble across that active ingredient that actually makes it work. It's like, oh, what if we put this brain dump uh, in the assessment? Okay, let's try that. 
bang, suddenly all the students turn on and it's working. Vicky, I'll throw to you now. I was just going to add to that um, that this is one of the reasons why we're so keen to work with other school partners. Terry and myself, as Tom has indicated, are embedded or situated in our school. And because of that, we are working on this very fine grain, almost, as, as we said, individual case by case, class by class basis. And we're beginning to find things that work in our context. I think it would be so interesting to bring in other contexts and other school partners to see what's working for them. Hopefully, beg, borrow and steal from them as well. And they can more than welcome to, to do the same from us and share things that are working between schools because a school has a secret weapon and that is the researchers within the schools. And I, I, talk, I think of all teachers as researchers in, in many ways, but because they are so embedded in their context, their best place to roll this out in whatever way they think, at least start, you know, in their context and then start refining it. It is guerrilla warfare, I can't even say it. It is hard work, but it takes time. But I think some real gold is beginning to come out of that. Mm, that's great. What, what are you looking for in terms of kind of partnerships? What, who, who, who should be contacting you? And, and by the way, get ready, ready for the tidal wave as well because there are thousands and thousands of Aussie teachers who are keen on this stuff and will, will be listening to this podcast. So for us, we, we've been very lucky. Vicky, through her work, obtained some, a very small amount of money, but we've, it's actually done some amazing work so far. So we built a website because I guess we, we felt that, and as Vicky alluded to, is that we want to make this the best we possibly can do. And sort of taking what sort of the feedback from Tom is this notion of class practitioner work, but actually trying to get beyond the impact of the context and actually trying to evaluate the efficacy of your intervention by somewhat replication in other contexts. So we've got a website that's open access. Um, it's open access for teachers, school leaders, academics, parents, and students. And it's sort of, we, we call it level one or stage one, where we'll basically share everything that we do in an open access way. And it's sort of like the discovery. Often we're, again, repackaging stuff that we've seen, applied, and, and then that sort of layer. But we're also building through that website a research portal. And this is where we're starting to look for schools. And we've been really, really surprised of the number of schools who are already connected with us already to start this next sort of phase where we actually want to start testing what we've got and actually put it up for evaluation or in refinement in other, in other settings. Because it's only through that replication whether we'll actually know whether it works or it works because we've, you know, somewhat willed it to work. So that's where schools can engage, which is the second phase, where they can take the toolkit, the scope and sequence. Uh, we've got a OneNote, which actually I tried to send, but it's too large. Uh, everyone's um, mailbox keeps bouncing back. So a way that we can get an entire scope and sequence from seven to 10 with resources, artifacts, PowerPoints, exemplars, videos, etc. that schools can look at and go, okay, well, we could maybe try this in, in our year seven cohort or maybe we could do this in year nine. And then they can go off and just and, and engage with what we've done. And then the last 
tier, which is the phase three or stage three, which is where we basically call it contribute, where they contribute back, where schools might, for example, take what we do, they can take our survey, they can do their own evaluation. It's their data, they hold it, but then they might actually contribute back and say, this is what we found. We could have uh, maybe four to 10 schools working together at the same time on an intervention, which is all classroom teacher-based, which is not relying on sort of any outside agency to sort of and break the mould of that where schools are sort of subservient to other institutions for their research and that they can actually contribute back. And we've already learnt from our conversations with the likes of yourself and, and school leaders from other schools where we've started to realise, oh, we missed that. Or, or we, oh, I never thought about this. We've had some really engaging conversations where, because people are coming in fresh, they go, have you ever thought about this sort of measure of metacognition or metacognitive fluency or these sort of, these sort of elements? And that what we're hoping to is to bring together a cohort of schools with sort of somewhat like-minded to actually engage in sort of participant-orientated research at the practitioner layer where there could be one, three, five, ten different pro, uh, research projects going on. Schools are working together. They're sharing expertise, sharing resources, sharing the load where we can offer. Uh, last year, we ran a teach meet on the confirmation day for all Queensland schools. Tom called in and he and we had 150 teachers from all over Queensland and some other states who for free were able to hear Tom uh, hear some of the work from Mark McDaniel, see some exemplar teacher practice. So this whole, I guess, democratisation of sort of school improvement that we're not relying on, it's not based on how much money you have or what sort of associations you're, you're tied to, is actually sort of really interrogating and I guess sort of guerrillaising the implementation of the cognitive sciences for, I guess, in essence, this is what it's all about. Cognitive science is all about help, helping people learn better and, and we're actually going to test it and see. And it's a, it's a leap of faith for Churchy in particular, but we've realised that there are so many benefits for us by sharing our work because it actually makes our work better and thereby because we share, we get back and it's the getting back that actually makes us better. Therefore, we're going to have a better product for our own stakeholders. Mm, that's great. And it, look, it's such an exciting project to potentially be involved with. Um, I really would encourage listeners, if they're interested in this self-regulated learning work, to get in touch. Um, and, you know, there, there'll be lots of links in the show notes to reach out to Churchy and the team. So, trying to bring together some of these things and really get my head around what you've done with a learner's toolkit and 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 the kind of one of the biggest learnings from the ERRR podcast over the five and a half years I've been running it or so is the importance of us thinking about mechanisms and active ingredients when it comes to implementing anything or any kind of theory within education. So as I've been listening to all three of you talk today, I've been trying to pull out you know what are the actual key building blocks of a successful learner's toolkit program if I want to do something similar in my own school or if other people want to do similar things in their own school. What I've managed to pull out so far are things like the buy-in. So, you clearly have a huge amount of buy-in from 
enough teachers that really want to do it, that you're collaborating, you're embedding it, you're able to embed it across the curriculum and multiple classes. You've got 30 teachers or more who are happy and enthusiastic to implement this program. So that's one thing. Another thing was that idea before of having things assessment embedded. So that's kind of alignment, right? If we can actually embed these things into assessments, that's going to act as a huge motivation for students. So we've got the buy-in, we've got the assessment embedded. There's a lesson embedded element um, that kind of comes from that buy-in, but also is really important to, to mention in and of itself, which is you've talked about, you know, they only have one session a fortnight, which in and of itself would never be enough to actually get any behavioral change from students. But because it's actually being reinforced across the curriculum in multiple subjects, that's having an effect. And another thing which has been touched upon today is the importance of timing. So you talked about, you know, older students, there's those kind of crystalline study structures and approaches, but also the higher stakes means they're less likely to want to try new things and experiment. So we've got the buy-in, we've got the assessment embedded, we've got the lesson embedded, we've got the timing. Throw over to you guys, and I, maybe Tom, you want to talk a little bit more about this timing thing, and Vicky, maybe you want to talk a little bit more about the kind of buy-in piece. But throwing over to you guys, are there any kind of active ingredients that I've missed that you really think, well, you know, this other thing was really important. It's been absolutely crucial to it being this, you know, ha- us having the level of success that we've had so far. That's the first question. Are there any I've missed? And then just over to you, Tom and Vicky, to kind of add a bit more color to a couple of those active ingredients I've mentioned. If I could pick out one thing, it would be the importance of connecting the pedagogy implied by cognitive science with specific curriculum content. And I mean that from the student's perspective and from the teacher's perspective. I think it really does matter to say, well, retrieval practice, how do we do that with rivers and geography or trigonometry? It's very, very specific things. And I think there are some more general answers, but I, I think it's, it's making that connection and doing that well, I think is a really big thing to solve here. And I've come across the distinction, certainly made in England, in relation to teacher education, between the content knowledge, the pedagogic knowledge, and the pedagogic content knowledge. You can know your subjects, the content knowledge. You can know teaching strategies like feedback or questioning. But the, where the real uh, effect is, is putting things together to know what questions to ask about particular topics, what questions will reveal the misconceptions, what feedback you can give which will move learners on, but in a very specific content. And that's the real expertise of teachers. So for me, that key ingredient it's great. We've got some great principles, but they're pedagogical principles. They're not connected to specific content, and they need to be for that to be done well. And just to sort of build on that slightly, I think one of the uncertainties, which certainly we touched on in our uh, review, is the the potential moderating effect of the, the phase or stage of schooling, like the age of children and the, the subject area. And and I don't have the really uh, answers here, really, but to something we, we feel is important, yet we don't know enough about it because it really hasn't been explored. And these are more questions and ingredients, but things I, you know, I'd like future research and future practice to explore is, first of all, the subjects. We have most of the evidence in cognitive science relating to science and maths and more technical subjects, subjects where there is... Uh, complex but specifiable knowledge that there's a there's a there's specific things you can know and retrieve and and and, and collect and I contrast that with English or arts based subjects where some of the knowledge is more tacit it's more about the nuance and the subtlety of say in English it's kind of metaphor and 
subtext and it's something which is really really hard to specify and it's either a key ingredient in terms of buy-in because science and math teachers tend to buy in a lot more and i've seen actually that pupils agree with some of the learners toolkit studies actually they, they found the strategies more effective in the maths and science end of things but there might be something more fundamental there about the nature of knowledge in each of these subject areas and i think there's some really interesting questions about well does cognitive science look different? I think it applies to both, but it may be in different ways and maybe there's other principles we don't know about yet. And then the other quick distinction I'd sort of say is, a, again, maybe not a key ingredient, but something which might be, is this age of children. And when I talk to earliest teachers, they talk about, um, say, things like, a, like immersion and kind of rich learning environments. And I know some of this is actually contrary to some of the principles of cognitive load so that's a kind of circle to sort of square there that actually is that right is that the, the the right instinct or not or and again look at the evidence most of the studies there for children who are about nine or 13 years old it's this kind of middle kind of period mainly in math, math and science so it's not that i'm not saying cognitive load is not important in early years i think it definitely is but i'm just not quite sure what it looks like yet so there's a key ingredient for us to find, I think. Mm, that's great. Thanks for that, Tom. Vicky? I think when we approached this, we very soon realised that our teachers, our learners and our parents or carers all needed to go through a similar journey together. So one of the reasons why we found knowledge, belief, com commitment and planning so helpful is that We've been able to build up knowledge across the community. So with our parents, with our teachers, with the learners, we then needed to recognize our teachers also needed to understand how this could help them in their teaching practice and their belief in and their commitment and planning, as well as the learners and so on and so forth. And I think having that framework was actually really helpful for us in trying to get the whole community because, of course, our parents had strategies that worked for them way back when and are telling their kids, well, you should be, you know, using those and, and the, all these mixed messages coming across. So having that whole approach and it is just eating away at all of those different groups and you can't just, as Terry said, just do one top down, okay, everyone, this is what we're doing and leave it at that. It's then embedding it in everything that you do as you've already pointed out. So our teachers have found that time to talk together about these things is lacking. So building time for teachers to build on their assessment, to experiment with things, to do some action, action research within their classroom, all of those things are great ingredients for getting teacher buy-in um, and um, getting them on board. But also, as I said, with, with their assessment and so on. So that was the, the first thing I was going to talk about. Tom, you were just talking about other barriers um, and some of those being not necessarily applicable, say, to the practical subjects, so design and technology, the visual arts and so on and so forth, English history. And I find that really interesting. And I'd love – we don't have all the answers at all here and we really have focused, as we've already explained, in maths, languages and science. But for me, I think those other subjects really use some of the what I think of as the harder strategies in our toolkit. So things like connected or elaborative interrogation, for example, dual coding, 
those sort of skills are really hard to do. And unless you have that foundation knowledge or skill, and it can be skill-based as well, it's very difficult then to explain, describe, link ideas, connect them, so on, to prior knowledge, to build on and so on and so forth. So I would be really interested. I'm a visual art teacher by training. I'd be really interested in seeing how some of these strategies which I feel are often avoided really a little bit because they're so hard to implement and how that might work in some of those other subject areas. Yeah, thanks for that, Vicky. Uh, And building on one of the things you were talking about there, uh, the kind of commitment and everyone's got to go along their own journey and, and the time allocated for teachers to kind of discuss these things and really flesh them out. Some schools only have a couple of faculty meetings a year and a couple of that professional development days and things like this. I'm wondering where this a learner's toolkit fits within the priorities of churchy. Is it just like an all-in, like this is the one thing we're trying to get right for the next decade kind of a thing? Or is it like, well, actually, we've got 10 core priorities that we're trying to do and, you know, you're kind of jostling for space in the PL time and things like that. How, how does that fit and, and what's your impression of the level of commitment that's required of a school to kind of start to get this right? We have a few research projects on the go, but I would describe this as most definitely the biggest push throughout the school. We also are working with Swinburne University um, with looking at emotional intelligence and adolescence. So really the science of learning, study strategies and the EI are the two big pushes within our school. And we're not really complicating it further than that. Uh, we're also really short of time, very short of time in terms of finding time in faculty meetings or distinguishing what is professional development and what is a meeting, you know, and all of those kind of things. So we are now clawing back time from our assemblies where faculties can get together for 20 minutes um, while everyone else is in assembly and, you know, just trying to think in really smart ways about how we can roll out or address the training needs that our teachers are are flagging and say, I'd love to know more about this, or can you give me a reading on that? We've also started um, very recently to have twice a term, we're having community learning groups where we're all getting together and we're sticking to some very simple core subjects so that we're not overcomplicating or overloading teachers with too many messages, whilst recognising, of course, that every teacher brings their uh, themselves into the classroom. So this, this isn't a framework for learning, but it is in terms of you must do, you must do this and you have to do it in this way. What it is is saying these are what's on offer and this is what it can do in these different scenarios. Terry, I'm wondering if before we move into some closing questions, you can kind of give us, maybe you've got another story of the kind of impact that this program's had on the cohort of students or a couple of students or a single student. Just to give us a kind of bookend this AAA episode with um, a bit, bit, bit more on the impact of the program. So the challenge is obviously is that you're going to come across students who are like everyone else, particularly resistant to change. And what you've got to do early on is that it, I was always a bit put out, I have to say, when you'd go, let's say, you, you, you're trying to do some training with the students, you know, suggest some better alternatives, show them, demonstrate, do all that sort of stuff. And often not only are the, the laggards or the students who, you know, are performing 
at the lower end of the spectrum sometimes really difficult to help and train along the way. But sometimes the really high ability students, you know, who have a record like within their own mind of actually, you know, high achievement and good performance. And one of the interesting things is you actually, that group are very, very resistant to change because often those high achieving students generally are quite driven but often the strategies that they use are very low utility, you know, very time-consuming, very laboursome, and that group of students are particularly difficult to change because you are actually, when you challenge them that they need to change, a lot of them see it as, a, as an attack on them as an individual because a lot of those high-achieving students tie a considerable amount of their worth to their results. And their results come from this hard work. And as long as they keep doing the hard work, the results will follow. And it becomes this vicious cycle. And we see sometimes students, as they get towards the pointy end of their schooling, a lot of those strategies that they've used for year upon year upon year, that, that have, they've ploughed hour upon hour upon hour, start to come undone. And I was shopping recently for a uh, tractor for my farm. And um, one of those really high-achieving students that was extremely resistant to change, I remember taking an uh, IB study session with this particular student. And he basically, in short, told me to jam my strategies because what he was doing, he was rewriting notes from one notebook to the other on a weekly and monthly basis where he's rewriting via verbatim his notes for all these subjects. And he felt that that was the best strategy for him. And his success was great until the wheels started to fall off. And one of the things with this particular student was that I saw him when I was, um, saw him with his parents in a, uh, in a cafe close to one of the universities that does vet science. Now this young fella is now doing vet science He's actually had to improve and make his own pathway because his results really tapered off towards the end. And he said in front of his parents and in front of my family at this little cafe, basically, he said to me a few days ago, it's finally dawned on me that everything that you, that you were teaching us actually works. And I just want to let you know that all the stuff, whether it be the quick review or the brain dump or this or that, I actually use now in my second year vet science and I'm doing really, really well, and thank you. And this is the challenge is that I, we use the analogy of you're planting a seed, and sometimes that seed doesn't come to fruition for some time. And what you're doing is you're actually, you're actually helping an individual to be that lifelong learner, and that's the intangible that comes through these sort of interventions. It's not like, I guess, what we're talking about before, like our previous research focused on technology and buildings, it's easy to evaluate the impact of a building because it's there. Physically, it's there. Everyone can see it. It's, it's tangible. Or you bring in a particular software platform or a particular uh, computer program, you test its efficacy and value. It's easy because everyone's doing the same thing at the same time. You can see it. You can, it's measurable. And the real challenge is with these sort of interventions, and as, as Tom alluded to, is that there's so much minutiae that sits below the surface and that's where the real challenge lies. Terry, that is a fantastic story and it's, it's so heartwarming when something like that happens. And, you know, you've talked about creating lifelong learners and I, and I know you're committed to kind of tracking your students after school. So, I'm hoping that research more broadly 
starts to actually look beyond the end of school to see the impacts of what we do within the school's walls and gates, what impact it has later on. Because really, that's that's what matters, right? It's not just whether their ATAR is high or not. It's the kind of learners they become and the kind of success they're able to have in life. So that's a fantastic anecdote. And let's collect more of them and do more research on that. Vicky, if people want to find out more about a learner's toolkit, what can they do? They can jump online, alearnerstoolkit.com. Terry and my emails are there. We'd love to hear from people. So just get in touch. Thanks, Vicky. Tom, in terms of the research and people digging a bit deeper into to the research side of things, what would you suggest people look into? Well, I'm going to have to recommend uh, my own science report. There, there is a, uh, probably not the full version, there's a 372 page version, which probably, well, unless you're very keen, people won't have time for this, but there's a, there's a much tidier summary version, which we hope does a, a good job of setting out some of, some of the principles and what they kind of look like. But I'd actually say there's a bit of a biased market really out there. There's lots of people out there making sense of cognitive science. Um, there's lots of excellent books. Uh, there's lots of excellent reports. And there's, there's, there's projects and things to engage with. So rather than recommend one thing, I would uh, yeah, point people maybe towards Twitter and sort of Googling a few things and you'll just find there's a really wealth of interesting things out there. Thanks, Tom. And opening up to all three of you more broadly, do you have any recommendations for some education books that you found really compelling? I would probably, in relation to it, like as Tom said, that Twitter's really good in terms of there's um, Sarah Contingham from the Ambition Institute and Peps McCrea. What they are producing on the Twitter for the Ambition Institute is just amazing. Their blogs and, and how they distill research are great. And I would highly recommend Efrat First's work. Uh, her website is great. It's got some really great tangible synthesis of really some high, high fidelity work that's translatable to many, many teachers. That's great. And any last calls to action or things that the three of you would like listeners to go away today and do? I guess the thing is that what we're wanting to do with the Learners Toolkit Open Access is to really empower schools to participate in their own classroom-based research that's not dependent upon their financial resources or their time. And it's all about creating, I guess, that cohort of, of people who are actually out there actioning and learning at the coalface. We, we sat in a um, webinar with a, a group of like-minded research schools in Australia, and an academic did say that, that a few people in academia aren't really on board or super happy with these schools now doing high quality research. And I guess what we're looking at and what schools more broadly in Australia are starting to now do, similar to what you see in the UK with their research and schools movement, is the fact is that schools can do high quality research that's well thought through, well articulated, well implemented and responsive to their needs. And I guess the call to action is really that schools can do amazing things and that by working together, we can actually overcome some of the resourcing and um, sort of those initial barriers to actually get really high-quality classroom-based research up and running in this country. A great call to action, Terry. Terry, Vicky and Tom, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a, a wide-ranging interview. We've been all over the place, but really at its core, we've been talking about driving towards the massive challenge of 
pursuing what I believe is the holy grail within education, which is empowering students to be the owners of their own learning. I've tried to do this stuff for years in my own classroom, not having as much impact as I'd like to. And I'm, I'm just super excited to be connected with the three of you and your extended research and, and school community more broadly, because I, I clearly you have the energy for it. You're resourcing it. You've got the people, you've got the motivation, you've got some fantastic connections. So I'm really, really keen to, to stay, stay in touch, uh, see where your work goes, contribute to it, and also hopefully uh, contribute to and help to build the, this movement in Australia uh, and around the world, which I think we so need. So thank you for your commitment to this work. Thank you for coming and sharing it with us on the ERRR podcast today, and we will be in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Terry Byers, Vicky Layton, and Tom Perry. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe and make sure you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.